Job chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where they refine gold. Iron is taken from the dust and copper is smelted from the rock. Man puts an end to darkness and to the farthest limit. He searches out the rock in gloom and in deep shadow. He sinks a shaft far from habitation, forgotten by the foot. They hang and swing to and fro far from men. The earth from it comes food and underneath it is turned up as fire. Its rocks are the source of sapphires and its dust contains gold. The path no bird of prey knows, nor has the falcon's eye caught sight of it. The proud beasts have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at the base. He hews out channels through the rocks. And his eye sees anything precious. He dams up the streams from flowing. And what is hidden he brings out to the light. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Father, if there is anything we search for, long for in this world, it's wisdom, answers, understanding, even knowledge, Lord. And we pursue it in so many different ways. And and speaking just as one of the masses of humanity, Lord, this is something that we find elusive. And we struggle to know. But Father, we come to You this morning seeking Your wisdom and praying for even illumination as we open up Your Word. We pray, Father, You would map out for us the course and show us what we need to see. Holy Spirit, we invite You once again to lead us, speak to us, and teach us of Your precious Word. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. A little bit of background here on Job 28. It is a treasure buried in the midst of the book of Job. It's something that that is surprising and it almost, some commentators go so far as to say they're not sure it belongs here. In this place. It's like it was plucked from somewhere else and dropped down into the midst of this discourse, this dialogue that Job is having with his three friends. And it has caused some commentators to wonder, what's this doing here? If we were to read it in the Hebrew... If we were all Jewish and Hebrew was our, our spoken language and we were reading through this, we would be struck by the sheer measured poetry of this chapter, Job chapter 28. It really stands out as though it were, again, plucked from some other place in the Word. Matthew Henry writes, the strain of this chapter is very unlike the rest of this book. Job forgets his sores and his sorrows and talks like a philosopher or a virtuoso. It's as though as we are digging in that we have just come upon buried treasure. And who can resist a good treasure hunt? This has kind of been a Crawford family tradition for years, what we call the birthday treasure hunt. And I think I'm about the only one left in the family who still enjoys it. (laughs) But when our kids were real little, we would have these, these, these treasure hunts where the last package opened would usually be pretty heavy and they'd be excited because it was heavy and heavy, of course, means good. And they'd open it up and inside would be like a brick. <laughs> they'd pick it up and under it, taped to the bottom or wrapped around a rock or a stone or something, there'd be a little piece of paper and they'd pull it out and they'd say, for your next clue, go to... And they'd have to go to another spot in the house. 
There'd be a clue taped, you know, up under the toilet lid or something, which they all thought was really funny. And they'd pull that off and read it. They'd have to go somewhere else and run all around. And, and I, just, I loved it. We tried it with Hayden um, for his 13th birthday, and I think I, like I said, was the only one who really enjoyed it. But the treasure hunt. There's something in us that, that wants to hunt for stuff, wants to look for things. You recall being a small child and wandering around maybe your house or your property or the hills and, and, and picking up stuff. I remember looking for arrowheads or, or bottle caps even. Or we'd go down to the beach and we'd pick up those little pieces of beach glass that we didn't realize were just you know, broken beer bottles, but we thought it was really cool. You know? It's a treasure. And from our youngest days, there seems to be that sense of treasure hunting. It is in, I guarantee you, it is in and among those who are going to Israel next week. The sense of hunting for treasure. You cannot go to the land without recognizing in the archaeological finds and the things that are cropping up from history, it's, it's an amazing find. And it's very exciting to be there and to actually see it. Psalm 85.11 tells us truth springs from the earth. And righteousness looks down from heaven. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 7 says their land has also been filled with silver and gold and there's no end to their treasures. So Spencer's gone out and bought himself a little metal detector he's going to carry throughout Israel this time. No, he hasn't. But here we are in Job and suddenly Job becomes, out of the blue, a treasure hunter. Suddenly... And it does seem almost out of place. He's been talking about the state of the godless in the last chapter and he's been lamenting his pain and the fact that his three friends have just been on his case so hard and all of a sudden he starts to talk about mining operations. I mean, the first 11 verses of chapter 28, that's all it's about, mining operations. In the sense of all of this, his pain is just not mentioned. You, you won't find a single mention in chapter 28 to the pain and suffering and sorrow of Job. It's like he's forgotten for a moment. And as he's talking about this treasure hunting, these digging, man's propensity to search for treasure, he begins with some obvious things. He goes through and he talks about mining operations for silver and gold and iron and copper. He references in these first few verses precious stones, sapphire, onyx, crystal, topaz. He even reaches a little further into the sea and talks about coral that can be found there, and pearl. And it's not surprising that Job would be acquainted with all this digging. Remember, he was the greatest man in the East in his day. Granted, 4,000 years ago, but this was a wealthy, well-to-do man who had his hands in a lot of different areas, and if anyone knew about mining operations going on, Job would have. Job would have been tapped in. And we have evidence of this that has been uncovered. Evidence that from the earliest days of man, ruins of mining operations existed, a lot of them in Egypt, in the Sinai Peninsula. Vast mines that were for copper mining that that are as ancient as 4,500 years ago. Between Petra and Zoar, there are pits where copper mines were discovered there as well, even up to the days of Moses. And the remains of gold and silver mining operations still exist in the mountains of Edom, south of the Dead Sea, near the land of Israel. Man has been hunting treasure for a long time. There's something about that little glinty, shiny thing on the ground. You, you know, you're walking along and all of a sudden, look, a shiny diamond. You pick it up and you're so excited. You've just increased your vast empire of wealth by ten cents. <laughs> Job says treasure is hidden everywhere. He says it's hidden in places where the great beasts of the earth, they have not known. They haven't seen it. The birds of prey, sharp-eyed as they are, 
falcons, hawks, they, they fly above. They don't know where it is. They don't recognize it. But deep in the hidden places of the earth, the treasure's there. Look at verse 9. He puts his hand on the flint. Speaking of man, he overturns the mountains at the base. What's he talking about? Mining. Getting into the base of the hills and, and digging and searching for treasure. He hews out channels through the rocks and his eye sees anything precious. Again, the shiny dime. You know, we're just attracted. Ooh, ooh that's got to be something valuable. You know what cracks me up? People who collect things and they put them up on a shelf, big beautiful items, and it could, it could be anything. You know, but people will collect these items, they'll put it on the shelf and, and they'll say, that's worth a lot of money. And I say, so sell it. Well, you can't sell it. It's a collectible. Anyway, going on. So people search for this stuff. They dig for this stuff. He says, man dams up the streams from flowing, which reminds me of the California gold rush. It's got to be here. It's here in the water. you know. And what is hidden, he brings out into the light. And so all through this, Job is musing, strangely, oddly it seems, about man's search for treasure. That insatiable desire to unearth shiny, costly, hidden things. What's Job doing? He's leading us up to the place where he asks the question about the one treasure that eludes mankind more than anything else. Interesting article I I ran across. Actually, it was sent to me. Steve Berenson sent this. It's entitled, Miserable Millionaire Donating All to Charity. Carl Rebader has traded unbridled luxury for life in a two-room flat. This is in moneycentral.msn.com on Tuesday, February 9th. Happiness and self-realization eluded Carl Rebader as he indulged in a supremely materialistic lifestyle. A 2.2 million, 3,455 square foot lakeside villa in the Alps. And by the way, if you have to use an entire sentence to describe where you live, you're probably more wealthy than you ought to be. He's in a farmhouse here in 42 acres in province, six gliders, an Audi A8. His entire fortune estimated at $4.7 million. Well, now Rebader is 47 years old and divorced and lives in a two-room apartment in Innsbruck and gets, on, gets by on just $1,260 a month. The worst that can happen to me is I may have to take a small job to get by, he told the Daily Mail. My idea is to have nothing left. Absolutely nothing. Money is counterproductive. It prevents happiness. Now the article goes on to say, really? We're not so sure about that. And believe it or not, Rebader has his critics, an Anglican priest, commented in part, if you use it for the benefit of others employing your time and skill as well as just dispensing the dosh, then you're probably of more benefit to the world than a former rich bloke in a hovel halfway up a mountain. I'm thinking this Anglican priest was probably looking for a little giving. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> ArabianMoney.net in Dubai. Heather, I just love having you here. i got to tell you. She sits over here and laughs at everything. <laughs> and it's so encouraging. <laughs> so just keep it up. Did I embarrass you? Should I not... Okay, good. Because I don't want to call attention to you if you'd rather I not. Okay. I can stop right now. You did. Okay. All right. Okay. So back to anyway. So on the other hand, happiness is a very personal thing. Rebader realizes this. He said, I don't have the right to give any other person advice. I was just listening to the voice of my heart and soul. 
His soul began telling him years ago that he was unhappy living the posh life. He mentioned being affected by the poverty in Africa during a visit there. The tipping point came during a three-week holiday with his wife in Hawaii. It was the biggest shock in my life when I realized how horrible, soulless, and without feeling the five-star lifestyle really is. So Robater sold his home, accessories, and furnishings business in 2004. He began supporting orphanages in South America. The gliders and fancy car are now gone. He's raffling off the house in the Alps, and he's put the farmhouse in France on the market. The money is going to a microcredit charity he created to provide small loans and business development help to self-employed people in six Central and South American countries. What do you think? Is he saintly or compelled by misguided guilt? Is he on to something or deceiving himself? Before you answer, keep this tidbit from MSN Money article in mind. In a study of members of the Forbes 400 richest list, the world's wealthiest individuals rated their satisfaction at exactly the same level as did the NUH people of northern Greenland and the Messiah of Kenya who have no electricity or running water. Interesting. His heart and soul told him that riches and wealth were not the treasure that could make him happy. But I've got news for Mr. Rebader. Poverty and simplicity will ultimately fail him as well. You see, poverty is not going to make you any happier than, than riches can make you. All of it is superfluous. All of it is beside the point. None of it gets down to the heart of the matter. The one thing, the treasure that we long for, that we need the most, the one that we're looking for, literally on a daily basis, wisdom. Wisdom. Verse 12, Job says, Where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value. Nor is it found in the land of the living. Man. The word for man there is Enosh. It means subjected to death. It means man. Frail. Weak. Mortal. Mortal man, Job says, doesn't get it. Mortal man misses wisdom. Job implies the futility of man's search for wisdom. That man can't find it. Like the seven dwarfs. Who sing... We dig, 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 dig in our minds the whole day through. I'm sorry, it's just where I'm at in my life right now. We dig, 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 because it's what we like to do. High hopes. They they sing about this. And all they do all day long is they dig. And they dig, and they dig some more, and they continue to dig while Bono sings, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Wisdom. It eludes us. How many of you just in the last two weeks weren't sure what to do with the current situation in your life. Just let me see a show of hands. How many of you kind of went, man, I just wish I had the answer. There you go. Wisdom, it's eluding you. It's hard to find. Where is it? Proverbs 21, verse 6 tells us, the acquisition of, acquisition of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor, the pursuit of death. And so mankind, we look for and we long for what we lack. Some dig for wealth, but end up digging their own graves in the process. Some realize too late, it is wisdom that I need. But even when we realize it's wisdom, we ask that question, where do I get it? How can I get the answer to right now, to today, the problems that I'm facing currently in my life? I need some help here. So Job asks, where is wisdom to be found? Verse 14, the deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. 
In precious onyx or sapphire, gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned. And the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. J. Vernon McGee, I love the way he puts this. He says, I do not believe that all this probing of the ocean floor and outer space and every crevice of the earth is going to tell man anything related to real wisdom and real knowledge concerning the origin of the earth. Man cannot find it there. From the beginning of time, isn't this exactly what we've done? We have searched. You know, we've searched the land. There were those who at one time, not too long ago, were looking for a new, a new country, a new land. That America was going to be the great hope. <laughs> there are those who say, no, we've got to go into the sea. We can find out great wisdom in the water. And it's not there. Let's go to outer space. Let's go to the stars above. There's wisdom there. And yet we still find ourselves back in that same place. I don't have the answer for today. Verse 20, Job says, Where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death, Abaddon meaning destruction or the destroyer, and death say, with our ears, we have heard a report of it. That's interesting to me. Death has heard of wisdom. Job says, Death has heard about wisdom somehow. How in the world does death have some concept of wisdom? Well, there's a hint even in that question as to where wisdom is found. I'll come back to it in just a moment. Verse 23. God understands its way. He knows its place. For He looks to the end of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When He imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when He set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, and i, I got to pause and share one thing real quick, just an interesting tidbit. Where it says thunderbolt there, the original language says He set a course for the lightning of the thunder. And critics, long ago, critics would say, well, that's not how it works. It's not the lightning of the thunder, it's the thunder of the lightning. Because everyone knows lightning flashes and then thunder rolls. Well, science took a while, but finally figured out what Job told us 4,000 years ago, that no, in fact, sound waves travel more slowly than light waves do. The speed of sound is more slow than the speed of light. Therefore, when you see, when you hear the thunder roll, it, it has already rolled. Actually, the lightning does come from the thunder, exactly as Job said. It's okay, science will get there. Verse 27, Then he saw it and declared it. He established it and also searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, watch this, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. The greatest treasure a man or woman can discover is wisdom. Because wisdom takes us directly to the feet of God. He's the only place to which we can turn for the answers, for understanding, for wisdom. And speaking of turning, keep your finger there and turn over to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. Two books over from Job. And what's interesting as you're turning there, you may be aware that Solomon wrote the majority of the Proverbs. 
And in writing the Proverbs, he makes comments very similar to that of Job. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Well, guess what? Solomon wasn't the first to say it. Job was. Job preceded Solomon in making this claim that the, fear, that the wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord. He made that claim a thousand years before Solomon came along and says the exact same thing. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 2, Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Guarding the paths of justice, He preserves the way of His godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity in every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart. And knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. Man, I read that and go, yes, that's what I want. Jim's talking about steak. Man, you know what sounds good to me? What tastes good? It's wisdom. It's to have the answer, even to the most minute of problems, to the most difficult of relationships, to have the wisdom that comes from the Lord our God. Solomon says in Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And and let me just point something out. When Job says the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. When Solomon says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, can we just not undermine the word fear? Let's not water it down. Let's be man enough and woman enough to say it means fear. Fear means fear. No, it just means worshipful reverence. It, it, it means that. But it also means fear. Were you telling us to fear the Lord? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think a healthy dose of fear would encourage most of our faith in the direction it needs to go. It would draw out the humility in us that we need to have as we approach the Creator, God, El Shaddai, Almighty, awesome, powerful, inconceivable, beyond human understanding. A little fear, I think, is needed in the church today. It is alright to fear God. It doesn't mean we can't be in a relationship with Him. There are times, (laughs) happened yesterday, when my children fear me. Corey and Hayden were getting into it. I didn't tell you about this. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you all. Come on into my house. <laughs> they were kind of getting into it. And, and, and it was just over, you know, I, something silly. I don't even remember what it was. But Hayden had a black pen and was trying to write on something. Corey's trying to get the pen from him. They're in the kitchen. They're doing this, you know. And I've seen this thing go out of, out of control so much. And I come walking out of my office. And I go, Hey! You know, Corey, my 19-year-old son is just white, you know. The abject fear, the fear of dad. And I go, you want to knock it off? Walk back into my office and I'm like, fear of dad, man. Good stuff. I love my boys. To have a relationship with my boys. We laugh together. We play together. But man, I'm telling you, when they need calling down, I will do it, fear dad. It doesn't undermine our relationship. It adds value to it. 
And in your relationship with God as Father, it's okay to have that sense of fear. It doesn't mean you can't be close to Him. It doesn't mean you can't long for Him. It just means you respect that He is God and you will never be. Fear. Well, Pastor, what about 1 John 4.18? Well, I thought you might bring that up. 1 John 4.18. That says, There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. So we shouldn't fear the Lord. Hey, listen, when we are perfected in love, then the fear will be gone. But we are not perfected in love yet, gang. We're not quite there. So 16th century poet and priest John Donne said, Give me, O Lord, a fear of which I may not be afraid. I really like that. Give me a fear of which I may not be afraid. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's where it starts. Imagine you're digging around in the dirt of a cave when something catches your eye, something shimmers, something of a different color there in the dust. And so methodically you carefully brush away the clay and the, and the grime and the granules of rock and you under, uncover and you see just a little bit but you see the top edge of what you know is pure gold. And there's joy there and excitement. You start to think... Oh, of all the things you're going to be able to do, it's a major find. And you think of all the things that I can do with this, the new house and the cars, and of course we'll build the church too, but you know the other things that are so important. But then something else tends to enter the picture, and that's the reality that, oh man, if I have all this wealth, people are going to be after me for it. It's going to be challenging and problematic, and so possibly some fear enters the picture. What I'm saying is that the fear of the Lord is kind of like that. You come to Jesus in the beginning, and it's amazing. It's what, really there's someone who loves me this much. There's there's a God who cares about me, and, and you're overwhelmed and you're elated and excited. But then that thought enters your head. But oh, but He's God, and so there's fear there. It's a good place to be. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. But if I stay there, it's, it's like the stuff on the shelf. It's like all the things that I'm collecting. What good does it do you? If I begin with the Lord, if I have that moment, I've given my life to Jesus, but I'm not going any further, it's like discovering gold and never putting it to use. And part of the problem among us as Christians today in lacking wisdom is we are not putting to use the treasure that we have been given. Let me explain this a little more. Turn your Bibles over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 in the New Testament. God invites you, invites me to enter into the mine of His treasure. To go deeper with Him. Not into some bizarre philosophy or, or, or off into some weird religious tangent, but to go deeper into the source of wisdom. That you'll see here in just a moment. I, I said earlier, death has heard of it. Remember that Job said death has heard of wisdom? How has death heard of wisdom? Well, I'll tell you how. Jesus died and resurrected. Death has heard of wisdom. Watch this. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul is writing to the church in Colossae and he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea. And for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, which is what Les and Jim were talking about earlier. Knit together in love. 
And he says, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Now watch, listen. Resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. Here's the hidden treasure. That is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you have a highlighter, highlight that. If you have a pen, circle it, underline it. Man, ladies, you've got lipstick. Whatever it takes. This is one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. It should grab hold of our hearts and pull us into a new place. Memorize this. Paul is right. In Jesus Christ are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In whom? In Christ. Not from Christ, but in Christ. In Christ Himself. Which treasures are are hidden in Him? All treasures. Which wisdom? All wisdom. Which knowledge? All knowledge. If there is wisdom in the world, if there is knowledge in the world, if there is true treasure, it is found in one place alone, and that is in Jesus Christ. Period. Outside of that, outside of that, it's fool's gold. Outside of that, it is false representation. Outside of Jesus, it is not truth. The cults come along. And they add to Jesus. Oh, oh, they'll say, yeah, Jesus is great. Jesus is good, but there's more. There's some secret treasure over here. Come dig with us. Oh, there's, there's some secret knowledge you don't have. Come get into the caves with us and we'll find it over here. And Paul's saying, nuh-uh. In his great theological voice, nuh-uh. All wisdom is found in one place alone, and that is in Jesus Christ. Intellectuals come along. Postmodern liberals in the church, they come along and they say, Hey, Jesus is great. But perhaps there's more than the old Sunday school answer, Jesus. You know, Maybe there's something else we can divulge or dive into or understand in this place or that place. Paul says, All wisdom, all knowledge, all treasure, it is found in Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on in verse 4, he says, I say this so that no one will delude you with a persuasive argument. In other words, people are going to try. Verse 5, he says, For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. That's another thing to circle right there. Faith in Christ. That's where your stability is, your discipline, your strength. Faith in Christ. Therefore... As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And if that's not enough, he pushes even further. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. What's that, Paul? Christ is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. He goes further. In Him, you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the removal of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, 
in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. There it is. Job says death is heard of wisdom. Gang, Jesus, who is wisdom incarnate, died and was raised from the dead. No wonder death knows about wisdom. It's seen Jesus. But it couldn't hold Him there, could it? And wisdom raised. Jesus is in and of Himself wisdom. And you might ask, well, what's, what's baptism got to do with that? I, I noticed Paul meant having been buried with him in baptism. Why is that thrown in there? Listen, baptism is a picture of burial. Get this very simple picture in your hearts and in your minds, gang, because I know, and, and here being at the bridge, people come with a lot of different church backgrounds and traditions. Let me explain something to you about baptism. It is a picture of burial. Regardless of how you, you think you've been baptized in the past, it is a picture of burial. Not just because the word baptizo in the Greek means to submerge, which it does, but the picture that the Bible draws of this thing is is incredible. No one buries a corpse by sprinkling some dust on his forehead. And I don't say that to be offensive. If you were sprinkled as a baby or, or in another church tradition or whatever, what I'm saying to you is the picture of baptism, biblically speaking, is of being buried. Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul said, Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death, so as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The picture is stunning and dramatic. Now let me be clear about this. Baptism doesn't save you. But it is a picture of what Jesus does for you when you join your life to Him. You die with Him to your old self, your old ways. They're gone. And there's more here. Watch what Paul says, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross verse 15 is awesome when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him this again is huge ponder this you can think about this the rest of the day and wake up tomorrow morning still blown away by this what happened at the cross is far bigger than we can even comprehend. While Jesus in the flesh was on the cross, nails holding Him there, crown of thorns on His head, the mockers is fitting, the whole scene in the physical realm, there was something Paul tells us going on spiritually. Demons were getting defeated. A battle was raging that ended up in the disarmament of Satan and his minions against anybody who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. They are disarmed. This was an overthrow of demonic powers at the cross. Absolutely amazing. And personally, for you and for me, anything the devil has had against you is worthless. Because the demonic powers have been disarmed. Anything you've done in your life, would you get this, please? Anything you've done in your life that was sinful, wrong, hurtful, ugly, brutal, any of that stuff, was disarmed at the cross. Satan's got nothing on you. He'll try to to tell you otherwise. He'll go to the Father and say, yeah, but but she does this. And we hear it go, oh yeah, I did. And the Father goes, I know about that. Tell me something I don't know. And Satan will go, well, what about this? Yeah, I know about that too. Tell me something I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, well, I forgave that. I forgave all of it. Do you have something else there, Satan? 
He's been disarmed. It reminds me of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. A great bashing of theology. And if you haven't seen it, let me just explain. There's a scene where the Black Knight is guarding a passage. You can YouTube it. It's absolutely hysterical. It's, it's beyond ridiculous. The, the Black Knight's standing there and he says, None shall pass. And along comes King Arthur. And he says, I need to cross this bridge. None shall pass. And so they get into this sword fight and Arthur swings his sword and chops off the left arm of the Black Knight. <clears throat> Falls to the ground. Blood spurting out. Just like this. And he keeps fighting. And Arthur's like, Are you kidding me? I just chopped your arm. Okay. So they keep fighting. Chops the other arm off. Boom. There goes the sword. The Black Knight then starts headbutting him. Blood coming out both sides, and he's headbutting, and he says, It's just a flesh wound, you know? <laughs> and, and so they're, they're at it, and, and, and finally Arthur chops off his right leg, and he still wants to fight. And Arthur says, What are you going to do? Bleed on me? You know? Finally, he chops off both legs. It's, it's, like I said, hysterically ridiculous. The black knight is on the ground, no arms, no legs, and he's sitting there. He still has his helmet, his little black outfit on, and, and he's like, Come on, come back here, let's fight, you know? And as Arthur is walking off in the distance, he's like, I wrote it down, Come back here, I'll bite your legs off. That's how ridiculous the attacks of Satan are against you if you are in Jesus Christ. Would you understand it? He has been, literally, the Bible says, disarmed. He has nothing on you, nothing on me. Christians, please understand this. The demonic realm has been disarmed. The best the demonic realm can do is irritate you or intimidate you. Which both is up to you. Satan can can try and get under your skin. And bother you with stuff and bug you. How are you going to respond? Because he can't make you do anything. He can intimidate big words, big threats. Oh, I'm going to tell the whole world what you did. Hey, guess what? God already knows. And loves you anyway. Isaiah 54:17 says, No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. Every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. I love that. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. If you are in Jesus Christ, the enemy is disarmed. Good stuff. Believers do not undermine the work of the cross by fearing disabled demons. Now, for some, the cross is not enough. Again, the cults will come along, pseudo-intellectuals, liberal liberal theologians and the like, they'll come along and they'll try and say, no, you need more, you need extra, you need this or that. And it's nothing new. 2,000 years ago, the church in Colossae was dealing with that. Uh, A philosophy called Gnosticism, that by the way is trying to rise up again today. Interesting. Paul goes on to say, don't let anyone dupe you out of a simple, honest faith in Jesus Christ as your wisdom. Verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels and taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Please understand what he's saying in verse 19, that that is Jesus who supplies all growth and strength. It all comes from the head down in the body of Christ. You want wisdom, you want strength, you want to be supplied with this in your life, it comes from Jesus. If you have died with Christ, verse 20, 
to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, all of which refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. He says, and watch this, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom. A lot of stuff in our world that has the appearance of wisdom. Looks like wisdom. Sounds like wisdom. And we can get caught up in these things, but Paul calls us right back to the person of Jesus. That is where wisdom is found, period. No other place. Self-made religion, self-abasement, severe treatment of the body, these are of no value against the flesh. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. If you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. I like that. Paul just flipped the whole scenario. We come to Jesus looking for a treasure. He takes us. He hides our lives with God, which guess what that makes you? A treasure. You're now a treasure. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, I I don't know where to go with this. I don't know what decision to make here. I'm not sure which way to turn. I wish I had the answers. And I I ask you all to raise your hands. We all did. Within two weeks, that's amazing, that we're all asking the same question. What do I do with this, Lord? My friends, your answer is in Jesus. And as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, Paul said, so, so walk in Him. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to, to walk in Jesus? What, this whole thing about Jesus being, being wisdom. What does it mean? Years ago, William Randolph Hearst. Remember, have you heard of... Hearst Castle there in San Simeon, California. If you've ever seen it, I, I went on a tour of it as a kid, and it's, it's opulent and amazing what, what, what Hearst did in building this, this huge monument to his wealth. But Hearst was a connoisseur and a collector of art. He searched the whole world for fine art of every kind, and much of it is right there at Hearst Castle. But one day, true story, he was going through some books, and he found a painting. And he was really drawn to it. So he called in his aides and he said, I, I want this painting. Do whatever you have to do. Go out and find it. Spare no expense. Purchase this painting for me. Well, they went out looking. And they looked and they could not find it. And so they came back to Hearst and they, and they said, we don't know where to find this thing. And he railed at them. He said, you go find that painting. No matter what it costs, I want it in my collection. So they went out looking longer. Three and a half months these guys searched until they found it. And they came back to Hearst and they, and they told him, hey, we, we finally located the painting. He's like, great, did you buy it? Uh, no, sir, we didn't. Well, why not? They said meekly, because you already own it. It's already yours. My point is this, game. Believers in Jesus, you already own it. The treasure is already yours. And it's stunning, and Paul really taps on this, that we have Christ, but we go looking for wisdom in other places. Whether it's books on the bookshelves, or the newspapers, or the internet, we're trying to find our answers to our life's problems, we grab our friends together, you know, as if they have any more answers than we do. 
And so Paul makes this point. He says, the mystery, Colossians 1.26, which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been made manifested to His saints. In other words, revealed to the saints. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among all the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we, may be, that we may present every man complete in Christ. And that's the deal. You already have all the wisdom you will ever need eternally. If you are in Jesus Christ, He says, Hey, keep my word. Walk with me. The Father and I we will come make our home in you. If you are in Christ, Christ is in you. And all the answers are right there. It truly is as simple as stopping your busy life and going, Jesus, I don't know what to do, but you have all wisdom. The Bible tells us, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. Our problem is we're asking in all the wrong places. Instead of just going right back to the source, the treasure of all wisdom, who is Jesus Christ. Listen, if you are not a Christian today, or perhaps maybe at some point in your life you were and you've slid, you're not sure where you're at, Maybe you with Job are asking where wisdom can be found and where is the place of understanding. Well, it's not a place. After all, it's a person. It is Jesus. All answers to all questions, all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus Christ. And if our children next door are learning the Sunday school answer and their answer to every question asked is Jesus, then they've got it right. And we need to remember that as well. Father, you have given us a wonder in Jesus. A treasure beyond treasure, incalculable in its worth. And we lift Jesus up above all others, the name above all names. And we know the day is coming when at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Well, Father, we perceive that day and we say we bow today. And we come before You. Lord, there's any number of problems and questions and struggles as evidenced by our raised hands this morning. Would you speak into our lives and give us ears to hear what the Spirit of Jesus Christ is saying to us? Would you teach us, Lord, how to be silent and listen? How to come before you and to seek your wisdom, Lord Jesus? Father, I pray that you would silence every other voice just as you have disarmed the enemy. And bring us into that walking relationship daily with you, Lord Jesus, that allows us to hear and to learn from and to walk by your wisdom. If you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, as we continue to pray, I invite you to accept Him today. All the answers, all you need in this life, and the life to come are from Him. And if you want Jesus today, would you just simply pray after me, in your heart to God, just pray, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need your forgiveness. I'm asking You, Lord Jesus, to come into my life and to guide me into all truth. I believe that You are the Savior, the Son of the living God. And I receive You today as my Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand up together.